All right. Good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. Um, You may have noticed we did not uh, take an offering uh, yet this morning. Didn't want to. Our mindset here, whether you are aware of this or not, is not that. So we just wrapped up our time of worship and now we go into something else. Like, and everything we do on Sunday morning is meant to intentionally lead us through stages and different aspects of worship. So the opportunity to worship God by serving, whether it's greeting people or working with kids or, or whatever. Th- those are opportunities to serve, and that's an act of worship. And then, um, then to come and sing praises, that's an act of worship. To greet and fellowship one another, um, that's an act of worship. To give um, of our resources, even financial resources, that's an act of worship. To learn and listen, to engage, to take notes, to study God's Word. This is an act of worship. All of this is a worship service. Everything you're doing this morning is expression of worship and service. At least that's the plan. So um, there will be at the end of the service, if you would like to, uh, to give an offering this morning, you can, you can prepare that now. And at the end of the service, there will be some people to back with baskets and you can, you can do that then. So I don't want to take away that opportunity from you. You've got that this morning. It just wasn't the normal way. So again, if you want to get that ready by the end of the service, it's easy to do. You can drop that off with them. Um, and as we're in, jumping into Hebrews 4, and we've got a lot of ground to cover today, because this is one of those chapters that you could spend months studying just this chapter. We're not going to. I'm going to try to run through it in this amount of time. But um, that's a, Hebrews 4 is a fantastic passage. It is a fascinating passage. And we're about to really get into the kind of the meat of Hebrews. In fact, the author of Hebrews in a couple of chapters is going to actually say that, is to say we really need to dive into the tough stuff here. We need to talk about the meat, not the milk. And so we're, we're, we're moving in that direction. So I hope you're engaged and studying. I've had a couple of people tell me, hey, i studying chapter four this week. I, I ran into this question or I had this insight or whatever. And um, that's always valuable to me. You can share with me on, even on Sunday morning an insight you had and I'll share it and take credit for it during the service. So that's a, I'm always happy for that. If it's a good one, if it's a good one. Um, if it's not, I'll let them know you said it. So um, the, the, here's not a big surprise, if he, um, Ephesians. If he, Hebrews chapter 4 begins with the word, therefore, of course it does. So therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now this is interesting. Therefore is the application of the last section, and this is building. It's like a pyramid growing and stacking on top of itself. So you have there from beginning of chapter 2, therefore listen. Chapter 3, therefore consider. Chapter 4, therefore fear. This is, the, this is the command. So we should be listening and considering, and that should, once we consider, that should inspire some fear in us. What an odd concept that, that this would be a fear thing. Where you come to church, we talk about love, and love casts out fear. What kind of fear are we talking about here? So here's the question. Do we fear that any one of our brothers and sisters haven't reached it, haven't attained it, have not experienced it, have not accepted this free gift? Do we have the appropriate fear that someone we know may have seemed to have missed this? Do we have the appropriate fear for that in here? Um, uh, Years ago, uh, uh, a guy who is a raging um, hater of God and, uh, and an anti-any form of religion, a guy named Penn Gillette, who's a magician you may have heard of, Penn and Teller. And, but uh, Penn at least has enough of a brain to, to comment on this and, and was kind of made famous for it. He came out and said, "How when, so, when an atheist comes to me and says, aren't you so offended when a Christian tries to 
teach you the gospel or tell you about Jesus or proselytize you or whatever? Aren't you offended by that? Pendulet's response was, no. No. They think I'm going to hell. They think I'm going to burn in God's wrath for eternity. How evil if they didn't try to talk me out of that. I mean, what an amazing lack of love that would show on their part, on their part if they didn't try to tell me. And then a, a year later, after he made that point, he came on and did another one of those podcasts, in which we could never show even five seconds of it, because that's how long Penn can go without dropping the F-bomb, uh, is that it, 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 he came out a year later and said, I just, I just want to say, like, I really think of Christians as closed-minded, angry, edgy people, whatever, but... In the last year, he goes, I've been stunned in the last year at the number of Christians who apparently have found my private email, have somehow uncovered my personal cell phone, have cornered me in bathrooms and in other places all over the world. And he said, almost without exception, they have been generous and kind and patient and just the most positive people. Now, again, I'm cleaning all that up hugely. But him saying, now, I mean... That has no bearing on the fact that I believe there's no God and all that kind of stuff. But do we appropriately fear that people who we love have seemed to have missed it? I, I don't think any of us do. I mean, if we, if we did, I think it truly would, would radically change our lives. But that is a let us enter it, while the promise of entering his rest still stands. So notice the promise hasn't changed. And the stuff that the writer of Hebrews is going to go over over the next couple of chapters, if we're not careful, can cause us to question this promise. Well, well I've believed. Well, I've, I have trusted. I have put my faith in this Jesus Christ. So then how am I going to miss it? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, well, you won't. That promise still stands. Nothing that's going to be taught from this point forward takes away that promise. The promise stands. God's promise is, is, is always confident. We aren't so confident. We aren't so, our, our part in this, sometimes we can seem to have missed it. Whether we have or not, we can't ever know. All we can do is look at someone's life and say, they seem to have missed it. And how do we respond to that? Do we have the appropriate fear of someone we love seems to have missed it? Jesus is very clear I know some of you have listened to the podcast that now got posted that, uh, with that conversation I got to have with a guy named David Smalley. Um, and, uh, and, and so and I was kind of disappointed because in all the other times he talked to pastors, he made a point of asking, do you think I'm going to hell? He actually asked that question. And I was looking forward to that question because I've, I've, I watched, I listened to pastors, some of them pastors and ministers and others really, in my opinion, have awful answers to that sometimes. And, and we, we make a lot of emotional mistakes one direction or another. But the truth is the Bible makes it absolutely clear. Jesus makes it abundantly clear. I don't have the right to make that call. I, I, don't, I don't have the insight into that. As far as I know, David Smalley, the atheist, is really a born-again believer who just found a way to make a lot of money on the expense of atheists. And so he's just a con artist Christian. I, I, I doubt that. But it's I mean, how could I not? I mean, how could I know, right? We can't judge the heart. As we showed, this passage will say that again, although we won't go into it. Only God can judge the heart. Only God can read the motives. Only God can know the thoughts. So we are specific. In fact, Jesus tells a parable very clearly. Wheat and tares growing together. And, this, and the servant's saying, we're going to go out and tear out the tares. And the master says, like, no, 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 you're not. You lack the competence to do that. You're going to mess that up. Uh, when, when it's all done, when it's all said and done, then I will send angels to divide it out. I, there are people who that's their job, not your job. You don't know. But when someone seems to not have 
We are encouraged to engage with them, to love them, to challenge them, to speak into their lives. That's what we're called to do. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. They, there are a lot of people who hear the gospel. You will hear, if you're awake, you will hear the gospel today. Now, whether you respond to that is going to be between you and God, between you and the Holy Spirit, whether you respond to that. But you will hear. Salvation messages always have to do with that. It's always going to be a warning. Hey, watch out. Don't do that. And then if you ignore that, if you neglect so great a salvation, you're going to pay a price. And the price can be eternal life. Hearing fire won't save you. Having somebody run around, as we use with the analogy, running around the World Trade Center at 8 in the morning on 9-11, telling people to get out of the building won't save people if they don't get up and leave the building. Ezekiel 33 has the whole um, watchman argument. The job of the watchman is to warn the people. The job of the people is to listen to the watchman. It's the same concept. And I will tell you, going back to that, you know, do we fear that? I will tell you, I fear it all the time. Until studying this, I didn't even realize how much. But I, I think about, I'm going to get up and preach on Sunday morning knowing that this is a relatively ineffective way to transmit truth. Knowing that, that this is a hard way to communicate. Um, back when Pike and I were team teaching, sometimes we would walk down from the stage and stand there and be like, yeah, we just did not, we got excited, we were all excited about expressing this truth and we did not get it out there the way that we really, the way we feel it. We couldn't figure out a way to communicate it. And it's, it's tough. We, we do, I think it's appropriate to fear that. Hearing it won't do it. There's a, as we talked about, the three Greek words, gnosis, to know something is accurate. Legis, to agree that it is accurate, to agree that it's true. I, I know it, and I even agree with you. And then fides, faith. Do we actually trust? Do we actually think that God has it taken care of? Um, this is a, a, a clear example of that as we've used before. is like flying in an airplane. Oh yeah, I see them fly all the time. I know they can. I can even learn enough of the physics to, to agree. No, no, they, they really can. That really does work. No, I'm not getting on a plane. I know, I even agree, but I lack the faith. That's the, that's the concept. We have in the U.S. a game that shows the powerful difference between hearing and understanding, between listening and responding. It's called Simon Says. Everybody, everybody familiar with this? You've all heard of this? Everybody knows how to play good. So let the first ever South Spring Simon Says extravaganza begin. We officially, we are started, but we don't have much time for this. All right, we got a lot to do with this service. Everybody stand up. Uh-huh. Look at that. You see the difference between hearing and responding. John, did you fall for it? Oh, good. We, we did that at, at Royal Family Kids Camp this week, and poor John, I mean, he's just terrible at this. Uh, when an authority speaks, he's like, yeah, uh -huh, what? Oh, again? I mean, it was, every time Pike did one, he would be like, yes, oh, I did it. I mean, it was, it was like time, all these little kids were, they were all getting it. John, not so much. It was just, um, that's probably just good training by parents, right? That you know, to, I respond to the authority. Um, okay, now we're done. So, you know, we're not, we're not gonna, we don't have time to, as much fun as it would be to keep 
to keep going through it. So don't wait for assignments as for anything. When we take communion in a minute, you can just go. You don't have to wait anything. Um, we're officially the extravaganza is over. But notice the, so, so the difference between under, hearing and understanding, that's a great, a great picture. Um, this is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about, this idea of, that, okay, they've heard it, but they're not listening, they're not responding, they're not engaging with that. Um, look, at, look at how this goes. Um, verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. Uh, again, another reference, by the way, to the security of the believer. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now, I don't think the writer of Hebrews doesn't know where that is. Uh, if, if you'd wondered about any of the others, I think this one kind of clinches it. Obviously, he knows where God rested in the beginning of Genesis. This is, um, the writer is, is kind of being, I think, a little sarcastic, maybe even funny here. But notice that the author, as I told you, is fixated on this passage. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. His judgment of them is they won't ever get this. They're not going to get this. They are in rebellion. They face a consequence. They must enter, in order to enter the rest, they must believe. Um, yeah, in fact, here, here's the belief is really the main emphasis, that the closest thing that's a behavioral aspect to salvation. Which, which really, because I mean, we don't manufacture righteousness, we don't manufacture any of that kind of stuff. We don't have that in us. Someone outside of us has to save us. Um, Ephesians 2 even you know, kind of uses the analogy of us already being dead. And it's not a lot of the dead person can do for themselves. Look at, look at John 6, 25 through 30. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So this is the day after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus flee, kind of flees to escape the crowds. The crowds just march around the Sea of Galilee to find him where he is um, and engage with him again. And Jesus, reading, seeing their motivation, says, Look, and you're, you're not here to, to, to grow or believe. You're here because you're, you liked the bread you got yesterday. You, you probably, people back then probably didn't get to experience being totally full very often. I'm like, we do here all, every six times a day. Instead, they rarely got, they got to experience that. They come back the next day, they want another miracle. What you got in mind? Oh, I don't know, make bread. The exact same thing he'd done the day before. So Jesus tells them this. Now listen to their response. Listen to this religiosity response. They, they've got this good religion response here. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Clear question. They want behavior. And, and maybe you grew up in a church where this, the, the pastor could have ended at verse 28. What must, I, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And, and a pastor could stop there, verse 28, and teach the rest of the sermon on all the things that you need to be doing to do the works of God. But Jesus' response is really interesting. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's our job. The degree to which we have a role in this at all, and that can be debated, 
at the most, is to accept a free salvation. Now, Christians throughout history have debated on even how much of that we're able to do. But that's at most, is that we say yes to so great a salvation, to such a beautiful, wonderful gospel. This is the picture that we, are, we believe in him. We rest in him. He is the better option of everything else that we have. And that doesn't mean work is bad. We believe in work. There's nothing wrong with work. Uh, I'm not going to read it. We're going to skip it, uh, David. But Exodus 28 through 11 talks about how we are to work six days and then rest one day. There's nothing wrong with that. Work is not bad. But we're called to a limitless ministry a limitless life, limitless in regards to parenting and, and marriage and ministry and mission work and neighboring and all that kind of stuff. There's no way we could possibly accomplish everything that God has called us to. The solution to that is that he calls us also to rest in the midst of it. Um, you notice how in, in, the, in the Hebrew mindset they refer to, and if you read Genesis 1, you'll see this. It'll say, and it was evening and morning of the first day or evening and morning of the second day. In the Hebrew mindset, you start with evening. The first thing you do every day in the Hebrew mindset is go to bed. That's how you start the day. You start the day by going to bed. We collapse in bed at the end of the day, right? That's how we see it. It's like, oh, the day was exhausting. I've got to go to, I've got to, go to bed. Whereas they see it the opposite. I know behaviorally that's exactly the same, but it's a very different mindset. We rest so that we can work. We, we, we rest so that we can live that out. Um, I'm, I'm going to, in fact, this is, I'm going to reference real quickly. Um, if you've ever worked in a church or if you've had family member who worked in a church or something like that, the challenge is one of the real challenges of church work. One is the fact that sheep are needy. And I, don't, I don't mean that personally, but I mean you're needy. And, um, and that's a, all, all of us, we all need something sometimes. And the natural tendency is when we need is we we go to, for example, pastors. And that's exactly part of why we're here. So I'm not minimizing that in any way. Over time, what can easily happen in a pastor's life is that, is that we get to the place where what we're doing is where we're always reacting. We're, we're, we're always putting out the, the, most ur, the most immediate fire. It's called the tyranny of the urgent. I mean, there's, there's nothing all that important about filling up my car with gas. That's not part of my calling. That's not something, a huge part of my vision. And yet, when it gets low... I better do that, right? And if we're not careful, we can end up with all of these type of things with the tyranny of the urgent taking over. That's not just for pastors. That's for everybody. The tyranny of the urgent takes over. The things that matter most to us sometimes end up being on the back burner. Um, and we need to stop and refocus. We taught through refocusing and refreshing just the last few weeks. That's on the website if you want to go back and, and listen to those. Um, a year ago, we taught through a significant series on just the concept of rest. You can go back and, and hear those as well. So the way churches handle that for their pastors is churches somewhere between, most churches, somewhere between encourage and require their pastors to take a sabbatical. Obviously, that's the form of the word Sabbath, a rest, a stop. Shabbat means stop, cease, cut it out. And, and this church says that after the fourth year, sometime during the fifth year, the, pastor is supposed, the pastors are supposed to do that. And so this is actually now, I'm almost done with my sixth year, um, but because of all the transition and stuff like that, so a year ago, Rebecca took a sabbatical, um, which was much more devastating on the system than probably anybody else in our church staff taking a sabbatical. Um, so in the, at the end of this summer, I'm going to be taking a sabbatical. I'm going to be gone for about six weeks-ish. Um, and so the purpose of that time 
is to, and I, which I already did, I, I actually deleted everything off of my calendar moving from that day forward so that I can refresh and refocus and begin to re-engage intentionally in areas that maybe I haven't um, so that I'm not just reacting, but I'm making disciples. I'm, I'm pouring into key leaders. I'm making sure I'm taking time every day to pray and listen. That would be nice, huh? So things like that, that we would, that, that, that's, that's why that's happening and that's why we believe in that. Um, that's why the church, the church here, for example, is a church generous enough to strongly, so, I would say, at this stage, they're at the strongly encouraged level. If I missed another year, it would probably become requirement, do it or else, probably. And so, um, and it's, it's high time for that. It's, it's, I don't want anyone to, to worry, except I do want you to pray for me, because um, I'm supposed to go be still. And you can imagine how good I am at that. I mean, I am, I am truly bordering on terrified about this. I'm not a high anxiety person. I am anxious about this, um, about the idea of getting away and being still. I'm not worried for you guys. You will be all way, well taken care of, and we'll have great teachers and all that kind of stuff going, but, but man. So please be praying for me and our family as we're looking at taking these few weeks um, and figuring out and some of these things going on. Um, by the way, barring like, I, I can't make promises for God, barring like, you know, God hitting me with a meteor or something, just for those of you who've been in church work long enough to be scared of pastors going on sabbatical because sometimes they don't come back from sabbatical. Um, barring, I mean, if I don't come back from sabbatical, it will mean I'm dead. So, uh, in which case, I won't care. But if, otherwise, I, I'm, not, I'm not going anywhere. So, it's, some of you may be going like, shoot, this was our chance. But I'm not planning on going anywhere. So, just so you'll know. Um, okay, so that's, that's important to, to go, be still, listen, pray, engage with family and friends and God to, to re-engage intentionally with life and schedule and ministry is important. All right, so I've got to run through a couple of things here uh, pretty quickly. So uh, um, in Hebrews 4, 5, again, this passage says, they shall not enter my rest. This is the, the writer of Hebrews is fixated on this conversation, on this passage, that, that the writer doesn't want his readers to miss this rest. This rest is so important. Um, some people won't enter the rest, that's clear, and some people will. And the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, is desperate that those who he has sent this letter to will enter the rest. That's what's wanted. Um, I'm going to enter that rest someday. I hope you're going to enter that rest someday. That, that inspires that healthy, I think healthy, appropriate fear that someone who we loved might have missed it, that we would not want to enter eternity without them. Um, God entered his own rest, but some people won't. This is one of my favorite quotes from D.L. Moody. I've always liked this. Um, D.L. Moody was a, a famous evangelist and preacher from the 1800s. Um, so listen, listen to what he said. You've probably heard this before. Some of you have. Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. That is the rest that we look forward to. At some other time, we'll talk more about this, but that is the, the eternal concept of rest. So we have a, an immediate consequences, immediate rest, immediate stuff that we experience here in life, 
promised lands that God calls us to that if we disobey, we miss. And the ultimate expression of that is the eternal rest that he offers us. Now, those of you kids who didn't know this, this is where the phrase rest in peace. The idea of that it is an opportunity to rest and to experience peace. As a kid, I couldn't fathom that. As someone with kids, that sounds nice. <laughs> Since therefore it remains to some, of some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news have failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. This is a great concept. The writer of Hebrews says, God knows some are going to miss it, but he wants, he wants you to hear it and to listen and to respond and to obey. So he set aside a special day. This is a special day. He has set aside a special day. It's the only day set aside for salvation. Did you know there's only one day for that? And he has set it aside, one day, the day of salvation. And that day is today. That day is today. And that's true for those who have experienced salvation yesterday. Some of you, yesterday was also a day of salvation for you. Awesome. And the day before that was. Some, for some of you, it's been decades. For some of us, it's been years. For some, today may be the first day to experience salvation. But it's not like we don't need salvation every day. It's kind of like marriage. I mean, you enter into it. I'm not less married today because I didn't have a wedding today. I'm still living out marriage every day. Every day is the day of salvation. If you put your faith in God when you were a kid and you're an old person now, every day is the day of salvation. You still embrace that and engage with that. All right, moving along. God has set aside a special day today. He has set aside a special day for me to be married today. A special day for your salvation today. Wherever you are in the process of hearing for Joshua, verse 8, for Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Once again, Joshua's rest was not final. It was not the greatest expression. It wasn't the best. A land flowing with milk and honey that God promises to give them and all they've got to do is set foot on it wasn't the best rest. A land where people had already built massive cities that weren't going to have to be torn down. The people of Israel could just move right in. That wasn't the best. Joshua's rest wasn't best. There's a better messenger than angels. Chapter 1. There's a better priest than high priests. Chapter 2 and continuing. There's a better lawgiver than Moses. Chapter 3. There's a better rest than the promised land. Here we are in chapter 4. And we remember this rest a special way. We remember the, the special rest that God has given us. So we're, the way we do is at the end of Jesus' ministry uh, on earth, he, held, he hosted a uh, Passover uh, meal for his followers. At the end of that meal, he set aside the, kind of the last two things in the meal. I believe he set aside the Messianic bread. And again, we, Lord willing, we will be doing a, a Passover Seder um, this Easter again, but this next Easter again. And you can experience this, the whole thing. But you, you set aside this, this Messianic bread and this cup of redemption. And he set those two aside and he said, every time from now on when you do this, do it in remembrance of me. This is about me, the Messiah, the redemption. 
Now, he may have just meant at the time, he may have just meant, listen, every time you take Passover, remember, it's about me. But the way the church has decided to live that out is that periodically we gather together and we remember by taking the cup of redemption and eating the messianic bread. Um, And Paul will reference those passages where where the apostle Paul linked to those in just a second. So if if you can, if the deacons want to and others want to head to the, um, the areas where we have the communion stuff, the elements... And Paul's going to come up here and lead us through this, and the band uh, is going to lead us in worship again. But that's what this is. This is a remembrance that today is the day of salvation because of who Jesus Christ is. I'm going to read a passage here in a second that's going to draw absolute attention to that. So we need to prepare our hearts to remember, remember who he is and what he's done. So, Paul. Yeah. The Apostle Paul in... um 1 Corinthians 11 addressed a congregation full of division and encouraged unity as they participate in this act. And so I think as he has called us to unity with the Lord's Supper, may we reflect and and pray for that before we get started. So pray with me. Lord, it is because of your great work that we are even able to respond to you today. As we've seen this morning, it's no work of ourselves and we hold no merit in it and on our own. Rather, it is your faithfulness that provides a way of faith for us. Holy Spirit, please draw us again to your truth. And Father, remind us every time that we try to do this on our own, that we are missing out on a life abundant that you want to provide. Praise things in your name. Amen. If you haven't uh, professed uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, uh, then we ask that that perhaps today is the day of salvation that you stop and reflect and don't partake and just consider that truth. If you have professed and, and believed upon the Lord, then, uh, then this is an act that we get to do, um, again, in remembrance of the great works that he has done. So this is the time that I'm going to invite you to go ahead and get on up out of your seats. In the corners are uh, the elements. You can grab a, each one of the elements and return back to your seats. As you go, I pray that you consider, again, these truths and consider where they need to affect your heart. Again, it is the Apostle Paul's words that remind us that as for often as we eat and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, There's a time where we won't do this anymore, or at least not in the same way, because we'll be in his presence. But for now, let us remember what he has done and remember what he is continuing to do. Again, from Paul, for I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, as often as you drink this cup and eat of this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Father, it is amazing that in all the ways that you could bring about salvation, you chose to break yourself. Such suffering demonstrates uh, this is a testimony of your great love for us. So as we remember this work this morning, remind us of the salvation continuing to work out in our lives until you come. So come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Y'all can have a seat.
Verse 11, therefore, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience as the people of Israel did, in other words. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is a brutal little passage here. The idea here is that, <clears throat> that disobedience will be revealed by the power of God's word. We use this passage in a lot of different ways. It's a cool passage and kind of a manly passage, and so it gets on t-shirts and that kind of stuff. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. Incidentally, this is the idea that Paul would have had in mind, a Roman gladius, which is edged on both sides. One of the main differences between the Roman gladius and how we as Westerners think of swords is that these weren't bashing weapons. You didn't bang up, they didn't bang each other's swords into each other when they fought, like they portray sometimes in the movies and stuff. They were razor sharp. They were, like, they were like a scalpel about this long. They were meant if you just touch the other person's bare skin to lay open their body. That's what, that's what this idea is. And that's what Paul is referencing. He would have seen it. He'd have seen this lived out many, many times in his lifetime. Probably. The Word of God is living and active. Sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words... That whatever it is in you, the disobedience in you and the disobedience in me will be revealed. The rebellion in us, it will be exposed. It will be laid open. I'm, I'm not a Greek scholar, and I'm, I'm glad that I'm, Paul's, Paul's taking the Greek classes now and learning that. Um, I didn't get a chance to take those classes. Uh, the first hour, we have a, a, a number of you have taken the Greek classes. We have a number of people been through seminary and, and trained in that kind of stuff. Um, a gentleman who's visiting the church, Bob Livesay, has, had, he has like four years of Greek under his belt. And so um, he's one of the people who I would go to for Greek insight. Well, he stopped me this morning and mentioned that the word here, he's like, as I was preparing for today, I'd never noticed this, that the word here has, it has, includes the Greek word where we get the word trachea. Laid bare and exposed means like this. Now, when you talk about someone's throat being exposed, you think, you know, you might think of a predator animal that goes for the throat or that kind of thing, but, but think in terms of in the same passage that talks about a sharp, living, active sword and the throat being exposed, it made me think of, of what, what dubbing was what, when people were made knights in the medieval era. Now, you know, we, when we see it in movies or stuff, it's usually done much later when it was very cute, the way they just tapped each other on the shoulder and that kind of stuff. But the original idea was that you would hand your sword to the, to the master or the commander or whatever, and then you would kneel down in front of them and lower the back of your neck, exposing yourself to be killed by them, to run that sword through you or to, to remove your head. In, in the origin, apparently, it even involved that what they would do is they would give you whatever instructions they were going to give you, and instead of this tapping on the shoulder thing, they took the broad side of the sword and, and set you on the ground, hit you hard enough, probably knock you unconscious to lay you down on the ground as a reminder, I own your life. This idea here talking about, it, it's a great passage, but what it's talking about is revealing that in us. God's word can divide things that aren't divisible normally. It can open up things that are normally hidden and expose things that are usually kept under wraps. That's what's being talked about. God's word will reveal it in us. When you engage with it now, my recommendation is engage with God's word now in all seriousness. Let it reveal the sin, 
The, the wrong attitudes, the deception and self-deception, let it reveal that. Uh, I was talking to Cooper Ezell riding over here this morning. We were talking about that atheist conversation that I had. And I was like, you know, it's funny to me to get into a conversation with these guys and they bring their best stuff. And I'm like, listen, you're not going to bring something to me that is not 10 times worse just by studying Scripture. If you go to Scripture honestly, it's going to lay you open. And, and you're going to be confused and upset and, and angry about stuff that's in there as you engage with it. I mean, this is, this is what God's Word does to us, is it reveals the wrong attitudes and wrong spirits and, and the re, again, the rebellion and disobedience and lack of faith that we have. That's what it's part of what it's there to do. Living and active like a razor-sharp weapon, like a scalpel. So why would we ever approach a God like that? I mean, imagine how scary it is to approach a God who's carrying a weapon like that, who is, whose, whose very word divides out the intention of our souls. Wouldn't, we, wouldn't the idea of our intentions being made revealed? I mean, can you imagine what it would do to society if all of us could read one another's intentions and motives perfectly? That would be, it would be awful. I mean, no, there's no way we could survive as a culture. We wouldn't have a shot. God sees all of that. Now, you can take that too far and take it to the point of going, and, and you're done with that. But that's the true in Islam, is that that's, that is Allah. Allah is not interested in your well-being. He doesn't particularly care about your well-being. Uh, Allah is, is this judging God who sees all and knows all. All of that's very similar to Yahweh, the God who we serve. But at the same time, we are then revealed. If that's what we're going to have to face, if we're going to face that kind of judgment, the revealing type of judgment, we're going to need some help with that. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So not only does he see, but he's going to call us on it. We're going to have to answer for it. Do you see why this chapter began, therefore let us fear? We would fear that someone would face God and all they have is what they bring with them. That would be awful and tragic. So I want to be urgent about this. Oops. Let me be urgent about this. Don't, don't miss this. Don't face God's judgment alone. Don't don't put yourself in that situation. Confess that God's word is at odds with your heart if you never have. Even if you're a believer, we have to constantly be aware of that as God's word is continuing to lay us open to expose us to his accountability. It's hard to give account to anyone. But to give account to someone to whom we are completely exposed with our throats bared, who knows the intentions of our heart, should be terrifying. What we need is someone to love us through that. What we need is someone that we can confess to them our need and they will come alongside of us. Someone to whom we can admit our failure and our imminent failure and our ongoing failure and someone who could save us from that. When? What does this passage say? When? Today. Who? Glad you asked. This exposure and this judgment and this accountability is okay for one reason and one reason only. Verse 14. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession, 
For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then... Now, understand what verse 16 is saying now. What should be our response to a God like this? I hope he doesn't see me. Like the kid who's not done his homework in class and the teacher's asking for people to raise their hands. He's trying to position himself so the other students are between the, him and her. So, I don't, don't call on me. That's avoid, run, hide. That's the natural conclusion to this. The writer of Hebrews says, no, no, because of the kind of high priest we have, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's why we can be so exposed. Because this God loves us better than we love ourselves. He knows what's better for us than we can possibly know ourselves. I, I used the word in the first service. That's why this God is safe. I mean safe as in the way a father, a good father is safe. Can he break you? Yes. Will he break you? Never. Not like that. Will he harm you? No. Destroy you? Are you an agent, a child of his wrath? Of course not. But you don't want to be a child of his wrath. Wouldn't that be awesome? Are we ready to talk to somebody about receiving mercy and grace? Looking for help in our time of need? Here would be the dream. Here's the dream, everyone. Wouldn't it be amazing? Don't you wish we had someone powerful enough to help, but sympathetic enough to be understanding? Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome if there was someone who had the power and authority to actually make a difference, but who would be willing to listen even though we are frail and fallen and untrustworthy and faithless at times? Someone who has been tempted just like us, who has faced all the same temptations that we have. If you're an alcoholic, you want to go talk to an alcoholic, but you want to talk to an alcoholic who's living in victory. If, if, if you have a, a pornography addiction, you want to talk to somebody who's faced that temptation, who understands that temptation, but isn't being defeated by that temptation. That would be perfect if you could face someone, if you'd had someone who'd faced temptations in ways we could never even imagine, all the general temptations that everyone has ever faced, and they faced them all toe-to-toe -to -toe with Satan at the highest level, and they came out victorious. Who would sympathize that we go, God, I'm weak. And he goes, oh, pff, man, I hear you. Been there. God, I feel totally alone and isolated like no one cares and no one loves me. Whew, yeah, I've had that one. I feel like I'm just living out in the wilderness on my own. I'm just starving out here, God. I'm all by myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Someone who's powerful enough to make a difference and caring enough to be willing to make a difference for us. That would be perfect. Powerful enough to accomplish whatever it is that we need and real enough to sympathize with all the junk that our lives have to offer. Wouldn't that be the dream? It isn't the dream. It is the gospel. That is why it's the way it is. That's what we have to have. And it is who he is. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you for this writer of Hebrews listening to your spirit and passing the truth to us in ways we can engage with. God, lead us to live this out, to accept this good thing, to not neglect this great salvation that your son has offered. And Father, if there's anyone here 
who yesterday was not the day of salvation for them. They, they did not put their faith in you and had never put their faith in you. God, our prayer is that today would be the day of salvation. For those of us who were, who, for whom yesterday was a day of salvation, I pray that today is the day of salvation. That we would accept that and live that out. That we would understand we need a Savior every day. That we're humble enough to accept this good thing that you've offered us. That we can with confidence boldly come into your throne room. Even though you could crush us with a thought knowing that you love us with all your heart. God, that's who you are. You are a high priest, high and lifted up. And you're one of us, a brother, tempted in all ways. We could never have solved this problem ourselves, so you did it for us, Lord. And so I pray that everyone here, one way or another, will bless you. Will bless you that today is the day of salvation. Help us to call upon the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.